Do you enjoy our podcasts? Help us to be able to continue creating quality content by visiting our merch store at store.another12.org. You'll find some great merch there, and the best part about it is that a portion of every purchase goes to support the work that we do. Welcome to Drippings from the Honeycomb, the official podcast of Another 12 Ministries. We are so glad that you have decided to join us as we enjoy the sweetness of God's Word one verse at a time. What is the ultimate evidence of authority? In Matthew 8.29, it says, What do you want with us, Son of God, they shouted. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? When we think about the question of ultimate authority, we really have to take into account the idea of context. If you were to think, what is the ultimate authority in the field of medicine, then you would look for someone who had proved themselves through years of skill and training and practice, and now as a result, had such a wealth of knowledge that they would be the ultimate authority on the subject. If you were looking at this in the context of governments or world powers, you would think of the government that had the most ability to impose its will on someone else. They had enough power that other people respected or feared them. And because of this respect and fear, they possessed great authority over other nations. Or when you think of a king who had great authority, you would think of a king that was so loved by his subjects that they respected and loved him so greatly that his words were revered and his commands were revered because his people trusted him to do the right thing. And so they carried out his commands without question because they loved him and they knew that he had their best interests in mind. Or perhaps you might think about a ruler who is so incredibly violent, so incredibly forceful in his nature, so incredibly evil and wicked, and he has surrounded himself with people who share in his wickedness so that the fear and dread of him increases the level of authority that he has over other people who listen to him based out of pure fear of retribution that he will take against them if they don't listen to him. And this would give him great authority. So we see that what it comes down to is that authority must be based on something, whether it is based on love, based on respect, based on fear, based on position. It doesn't matter. There has to be something that upholds that authority. And how do we know that someone has authority? Well, we can observe with our eyes. We can experience interactions with those people, or we can hear about it from others. A great illustration of authority that can be found within Scripture is found in 2 Kings 1. And this part of Scripture records a story about the prophet Elisha. And the wicked king of Israel sent for Elisha because he wanted to bring him into his presence to ask him if he would be healed of this illness that had come upon him when he had been injured in a fall. But this king was an evil king. He did not follow the ways of God. And so rather than go and humbly request the presence of Elisha, he sent soldiers to drive Elisha to the palace. And the first captain of 50 soldiers came to Elijah and addressed him as a man of God and then commanded him to follow him to the palace. And Elisha just responded and said, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed the men. And so the king sent another captain and 50 men who repeated the same error and fire fell from heaven on them and burned them up. 
And so the king sent a third group of 50 men. And this time, the captain of those men crawled before Elisha on his knees and asked him to come. And God instructed Elisha to go with him. And you can read the rest of the story in 2 Kings chapter 1. But the point of this story is that Elisha wielded great authority from God because he was the prophet of God. The first military captain disrespected the authority of the prophet of God and paid for it with his life and the life of his men. The second military commander also disrespected the authority of the prophet of God, and he paid for it with his life and the life of his men. But the third military commander understood the principle of authority. And so he respected the authority that backed up the prophet of God, which was God's authority. And he was successful in his mission and he spared the lives of his men because of his humility before authority. Now suppose we shifted the context to one where the person who wielded the authority was so incredibly powerful that even his greatest enemies could not do anything but respect his authority. That would be quite a different story. That would be quite an authoritative person. That would be someone who must have more than just a position of authority, respect, fear, whatever it might be. This would have to be some greater authority. This would have to be an authority that was in that person's very nature. That everyone who came in contact with it was immediately humbled and forced to respect that authority. And that's exactly what we read in Matthew 8, 29. Jesus displayed the ultimate authority, even greater than the authority displayed by Elisha in the story found in 2 Kings. Because Elisha was still disrespected by the captains who deemed his authority not worthy of respect. Even though they paid for that disrespect with their lives, they still disrespected his authority. But in this story in Matthew 8, Jesus comes face to face with his ultimate enemies, and those are the demons of Satan. And these demons have no choice but to bow down to Christ's authority. They are forced to say, we have no power over this person. In fact, we are under total domination by this person. And we know by reading the accounts that these demons were in this man and they controlled his actions. He was what you could call a wild man. He lived in the tombs. He was ragingly violent. He wore no clothes at all. He was completely naked. And he could not even be bound or guarded. In fact, it says that oftentimes they had tried to bind him with chains and he had burst the chains with his strength. And this obviously is more than human strength. This is demonic strength. And so these demons were ravaging this man. In fact, he was covered in cuts and covered in bruises from self-inflicted injuries because demons always seek to destroy the ones they inhabit. And as this story is set, Jesus steps out of the boat on this Gentile side of the lake and he's met by two men, but the story really focuses on one of them. And this man is coming out of the tombs screaming, What do you want with us, Son of God? Now, this is an interesting thing to be shouting. The translation for what do you want with us could really be translated more like, why are you bothering us? Why are you interfering with our possession of this man? Why are you getting in the way? Leave us alone. But then it's followed with the acknowledgement of who Jesus is. 
the Son of God. In fact, in the accounts of Luke and Mark, they remark that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. See, they recognize Christ's divinity. They acknowledge it. This does not mean that they are worshiping Jesus. This does not mean that they are bowing down before him in any form of reverence. They are enemies of God. They hate God, and they hate Jesus because he is part of the Trinity. They recognize that he is divine, and they want nothing to do with him, but the nature of his authority is so overwhelmingly powerful that they have no choice but to acknowledge his true identity. They cannot not acknowledge his true identity, because he has total lordship over them and over their fate. They recognize that he has the power to step in and stop their sinful activity, that he can put an end to their domination of this man, and that he can even consign them to torment. And so they are terrified of him, and they recognize his authority and his position, and they cry out an acknowledgement of who he is. And this is witnessed by the disciples, because the disciples are with him. And so here you have a demon-possessed man, the demons of which are crying out that Jesus is the Son of God. They're attesting to his deity. And from there they go on to utter something rather astonishing. They say, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? See, they understood that their end was going to be eternal torment. But they're taken by surprise here. They did not know that Jesus was coming. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, they're a bit stunned. He had interrupted their activity. He had shown up on the scene unexpected. And now they've had to recognize that he is the Son of God and they're at his mercy. He can do with them whatever he wants. In fact, Mark even records that the demons cried out, In the name of God, do not torture me. Which is interesting because what it shows is that they understood the sovereignty of God the Father and actually appealed to God the Father's timeline to beg Jesus not to torment them ahead of God's sovereign timeline. And of course we know that the Father and Jesus are one, and so Jesus is not going to do something different than the Father's will. Jesus' will and the Father's will is united, it is one will, and they are working together against Satan. And so Despite divine authority over these demons, Jesus is not going to augment his eternal plan just to torment these demons that he's come in contact with. He has already set a time and a place where he will judge them and will set in motion their eternal torment. That has already been determined in God's perfect will. But that does not change the validity of the fact that the demons recognized that Jesus as God had absolute and total sovereignty over their judgment. That there was an appointed time for their torment, but even so they feared because God is sovereign and can do whatever he chooses. And it also shows that the demons are very aware of what their end is going to be. They understand that they are going to be in torment. That does not necessarily mean that they know all the plans of God. They are not omniscient like him. They do not know everything that he is going to do. And that's evidenced by the fact that Jesus really surprises these demons when he comes on the scene. But they know beyond the shadow of a doubt that at some point they are going to be judged. They do not understand the inauguration of the kingdom. They do not understand the concept of Jesus coming first to break the hold of Satan and to open up a time where salvation will be granted to the people of the earth. They don't comprehend any of that. They just know that at the end, they're going to be destroyed and judged for the evil that they have done. And it's very significant to take into account the fact that they recognize Jesus as the Son of God, 
and in the Mark account that they appeal to God. They recognize Jesus and God the Father as two distinct persons. They actually affirm two-thirds of the Trinity here by showing that they recognize God the Father and Jesus the Son as unique and distinct individuals. They also show by virtue of the fact that they are terrified of the authority of Jesus, that Jesus was not just a man, because they recognize in him divinity. They recognize Jesus as being divine. See, they see his divine nature, and they understand who he is. And their outcry shows that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God, and that he is divine. Jesus has so much authority in this situation. Not only does he have a total say over the future of these evil spirits, not only are they forced to the ground in a kneeling position before him, but through their appeal to him they even affirm his divinity. These demons, enemies of God, are under such an intense weight of crushing divine authority that they cannot do anything other than acknowledge the weakness of their position and proclaim the power and position of Jesus Christ. And this interaction answers our initial question. It shows us that the evidence of ultimate authority is the total domination of an enemy to the point where that enemy cannot even exercise its own power other than to affirm the power under which it is now held powerless. And the only authority in all the universe that can have that kind of power is God himself. He is the only one that could have that kind of hold over the forces of Satan, over the demons. No other authority could exercise that kind of authority in any context in the created realm. And so not only does this passage show us the definition for the evidence of ultimate authority, it points to the ultimate authority himself. God, Jesus Christ, the Trinity, the only authority that is ultimate in all of the created realm, in all of the universe. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Drippings from the Honeycomb. If you would like to learn more about Another 12 Ministries, and the work that we are doing to train youth ministry leaders to bring the gospel to young people, visit another12.org. If you would like to support our ministry, click on the donate link in the description below.